Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, we're just one week away from turning the skeleton key and swinging open the twisted black metal gates to our vault of terrifying tales to welcome a new set of spine-chilling creative terrors into the fold. Yes, it's that special time of year where you let the skeletons out of your closet, your inner demons come out to play, and give that shadow that's been following you around its moment in the spotlight. Tales to Terrify opens for submissions August 15th, so get your stories ready. This week, we're back on the road again, traveling to the southeastern edge of the Canadian Rocky Mountains. Crow's Nest Pass is a beautiful little area that straddles the boundary between the provinces of British Columbia and Alberta, not far from the Montana border. It's an area with a rich and turbulent history, much of which comes from deep underground. From the bones of ancient civilizations found embedded deep in the soil, bones that make it the richest archaeological site in the Canadian Rockies, I'd add, to the hundreds of comparatively new remains that have been claimed by the earth through numerous mining disasters. In Crow's Nest Pass, it seems, Death is never far below the surface. Of all the disasters that have befallen the picturesque mountain pass, though, one in particular has become almost synonymous with the pass itself. The hotel was understaffed that night, and Lillian Clark stayed late to help out. 
she was a surprisingly hard and conscientious worker for just 15 years old, and she was eager to prove herself to her new boss. The hotel had changed hands just months earlier, much to the relief of Lillian's mother, Amelia. Amelia hadn't trusted the old owner much with her daughter, but the new one seemed kind and generous. It was pitch black out by the time Lillian completed her work and was ready to pack up for home. The temperature had dropped, too. While the days were increasingly warm in late April, the evenings cooled off quickly in the shadow of Turtle Mountain. So when the owner offered Lillian a place to stay for the evening, she was happy for the chance and graciously accepted. The mine had been particularly noisy that night, and while the bed was warm and soft and inviting, it took her some time to fall asleep. Distant booms and clangs yanked her back from the edge of sleep more than once. At some point, though, she must have fallen asleep, because she was suddenly jolted awake by a deafening roar, a nightmarish grating rumble like cracking and tearing of stone teeth. The whole hotel seemed to shake and shift around her. She fell to the floor and pressed her palms to her ears, desperately trying to block out the maddening noise. The seconds felt like hours, and just when she thought she'd be swallowed up by the cacophony, it stopped. She could still hear small echoes of the noise bouncing off the valley walls, and occasional soft shushing and dull clunk of earth shifting nearby. The sudden silence was awful, stifling, pregnant with ominous possibilities. But the sounds that soon followed were worse still. Screams and crying, guttural primal noises that seemed more animal than human. Lillian coughed and stood. The dark room was thick with chalky dust, and the tang of it stung her eyes and tongue. She carefully wove her way out of the room, through the cloudy hallway, and down out into the street. Somehow the dust outside was even worse, thick and gray and close. It must have been early, because everything was still pitch black, though it was hard to tell through the floating debris. Even the lanterns that hung from the front of the hotel seemed to struggle against the suffocating grit. Others were in the street, too. Some wandered shell-shocked, wide eyes vacant and staring. Others ran and screamed for their loved ones. A stark realization suddenly struck Lillian. Home. Her mom and six siblings would have been at home asleep. Whatever was happening, she had to see if they were safe. She began to sprint in the direction of the house, but mere steps from the hotel, the ground became treacherous, and it got even worse the further she went. First strewn with rocks and gravel, then with larger and larger pieces of stone. Lillian skidded to a halt, breathless as a monolith of limestone loomed out of the hazy darkness. It had come to rest partway through one wall of a house, the cracked and pitted stone dwarfing the modest building and blocking the street. 
Peering past the shadowy stone, Lillian struggled to catch a glimpse of her street, her home. But through the dense, chalky cloud, all she could make out was what looked like a wall of similar rocks and boulders sloping up and out of sight, a wall that towered over where her home had been. She sank to her knees and began to sob. Through sheer luck or fate, Lillian Clark was the only member of the Clark family that survived the slide. At 4.10 a.m. that morning, in a mere 90 seconds, 82 million tons of limestone had sheared off the face of Turtle Mountain and cascaded down into the valley below, burying part of the town of Frank. Of the town's 600 residents, nearly 100 were suspected dead. Many of those bodies were never recovered, either, and remain trapped under 100 feet of stone to this day. It's not to say their spirits remain beneath the ground, though. It probably comes as no surprise that a tragic event of this magnitude would leave a lasting mark on the valley, and not just physically, either. From the Interpretive Center, you can see where the mountain face broke off and came rushing down into the valley and partway up the other side, with a thin line cut in between where the boulders were cleared for a highway to pass through. I've been there a handful of times throughout my life, and the sheer immensity of the rock never ceases to leave me in awe. Standing next to a boulder three times your height and thinking about those who lived in the town when these rocks came crashing down, it has a way of making you feel pretty small and vulnerable. Wandering the area by day, there's a certain eerie weight to it. Just knowing there's dozens of bodies hidden beneath the rock. Bodies that could be just feet away. But by night, things get even stranger. There have been reports of pale figures wandering between the boulders, and strange lights that weave through the cracks and gaps in the stone. Small clouds of mist will sometimes form out of thin air, too, and float through the rubble, briefly coalescing into the unmistakable shape of a human form before dispersing back into the atmosphere. Spirits searching for lost loved ones, or maybe wandering forgotten streets looking for their long-destroyed homes. In 1922, while doing some improvements to the highway that traveled through the rubble, a road crew made a disturbing discovery. After moving some rocks and boulders out of the path of the expanding road, one of the workers spotted something smooth and white against the dirt. A skull. Knowing the history of the area, I can't imagine they were entirely surprised to see it, even if the experience was unnerving. The workers cleared more dirt from around the area and realized the skull was part of only one of seven bodies. Huddled close together, they discovered the skeletal remains of one woman and several children, Lillian's mother and her six younger siblings. It seemed the Clark family had found their way home at last. If you ever get a chance to visit the Frank Slide, I highly recommend it. It's a place unlike any other, 
a place whose eerie ambiance is stuck with me to this day. Now let's see if we can't find a little something to stick with you. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from John Dodds. John Dodds is the author of novels ranging in subject matter from psychological crime to science fiction and mainstream comedy drama. His Glasgow crime novel trilogy, Bone Machines, Kali's Kiss, and Babylon Slide, are available as commercial audiobooks published by Blackstone Audio Inc., USA. The first two are narrated by Robin Sachs, an actor who appeared in Jurassic Park Last World, Torchwood, and more, while the narrator for Babylon Slide is award-winning narrator John Lee, who has voiced work by high-profile authors such as Joe Nesbo and George R. R. Martin. John has also published numerous short stories, three of which received honorable mention in the year's best fantasy and horror, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. Of his most recent self-published novelette, The Witch's Promise, Amazing Stories said, A captivating little story. When the surprising end comes, you're going to want more. Children of the Night, join me for John Dodd's Sugar Ceremony, a Tales to Terrify original. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. On the shaded slope of the hillside, a dozen children formed a ragged circle and bowed their heads. At the crest above them, where Marianne stood watching, an easterly wind subdued the grass. She rose on the tips of her toes, craning her head this way and that, but the children's crenulated shoulders were as impenetrable as a medieval fortress. 
They were burying something. She knew that much. Flies dive-bombed her, but she recognized the futility of slapping them away. Buzz, buzz. She mumbled in irritation. Zub, zub. She enjoyed playing with words, reshaping them like plasticine. Rhyming some, inverting others. She warped conventional meaning to her own ends. Her current favorite word was weary, out of which she'd made a rhyme. I weird and weird and weird my weary way downstairs. Sometimes she'd add a tune, composed on the hoof. It was surprisingly melodic often, and with a lack of affectation many a composer would envy. Jamming a lump of toffee into her mouth, she probed with her tongue at the scrap of paper bag still stuck to it. The paper gave her saliva a sour tang and she was relieved when the soggy patch came free and she could spit it out. During that first week in school, her inability to express a range of confused emotions impelled her to tear an exercise book to shreds. She'd packed some of the shredded pages inside her cheeks like a squirrel storing nuts, pressed her lips tight and sat there like a bad case of mumps until Mrs. Dortman insisted she get rid of it. Amen. A single word, the only comprehensible one, from the droning eulogy chanted by the children below drifted into her hearing. Men, ah, uh, Marianne added quietly to herself. Presently, the circle began to lose its shape, the children breaking apart and sauntering off. All except one, Paul McPherson, who raised an interrogative gaze. His chocolate-colored eyes were unflinching until something in them flickered, and he turned away as though caught out. He ran to catch up with the others. Marianne leaned against the ash tree, which was ancient and the only tree for a mile in any direction. Its warmth comforted her. The chattering leaves were like friends. From here she could see that at the center of where the circle of children had been, was a mound of earth as big as a man. Moving closer, she saw something reddish and shiny poking out of the earth where a headstone should have been. She dropped to her knees as if in supplication and began digging with her bare hands. The soil was unpleasantly moist, clinging to her fingers and soiling her nails. She levered out what proved to be a red lacquered shoebox its lid held clothes with purple wool tied in a bow in several knots. Loosening the bow and working the knots free, she prized open the lid. Inside was a sheaf of Polaroid photographs. They were all of the same sort, pictures of naked, bruised, and cut children gazing emptily into an unnaturally harsh light which turned their shadows against the gray concrete wall behind them into elongated tortured shapes, like primitive cave paintings of a hunt. Marianne knew at that moment the answer to the larger secret the mound concealed. She dropped the box and the photographs fluttered out like desiccated butterflies. She started to wheeze, to fight for breath, as if someone was cupping a hand over her nose and mouth, stopping air from getting in or out. She fumbled the blue inhaler from her coat pocket, and held it to her mouth, 
thumb pushing down on the gas cylinder to puff Ventolin into her throat. She was supposed to breathe out first, but her system screamed for an in-breath. The drug made her heart hammer, and she had to suck two more times before her lungs opened enough to fill with oxygen. Buried treasure, she looked up. It was Catherine Maxwell, a friend of her mum's, hunched inside a man's navy blue parka. Her feet were bare, which for some reason didn't seem odd to Marianne. She could see that the toenails were dirty, the crimson nail varnish dried and peeling away, and there were traces of the red clay soil between the toes and across the arches of the feet. The hems of her jeans, too, were muddy. He's quite dead, you know, Mrs. Maxwell said, nodding at the mound of earth. Marianne looked at it, trying to discern the shape of the man she believed to be under the soil. Who is? Nurse cracked the question in her throat, and it came out a whisper. The candy man. The man with the sweets. Mrs. Maxwell's daughter, Janie, would have been Marianne's age by now. She'd heard Mum talk to Mrs. Maxwell about Janie, while her friends sobbed and howled and raged against her loss. It was as if the girl had stepped on a train for an unknown destination, telling no one she was leaving, neither waving goodbye nor offering hope of her return. Catherine Maxwell now did a strange thing. She reached into a canvas sack at her feet and withdrew a large white bag, a two-pound bag of refined sugar with blue printing on it. Next, she pulled the glued and folded edge away from the side so as not to tear a hole in the paper and meticulously opened the pocket. Standing at the side of the mound, she carefully poured a stream of sugar onto it, making a vertical line up the center. Crystal particles sparkled in the air, blown by the strengthening wind. Once the bag was empty, she produced a second bag of sugar and made a white cross piece, intersecting the other line a third of the way from the top of the mound a sugar crucifix. So he never comes back, she explained to Marianne. But the candy man isn't really dead, Marianne wanted to tell her. He isn't dead because he's in my house now. He's kissing my mum, maybe, or glugging beer straight out of the can, or smoking. Her mum never let him smoke in the house, though, so instead he would stand in the doorway the light from the kitchen behind him making an apron across the back lawn, while he studied the wintry stars through the smoke curling up from his fingers. Mrs. Maxwell crouched down and rescued the scattered Polaroids, shuffled them into a neat stack and squared off the edges, their black backs uppermost. She couldn't seem to look at the pictures themselves. The kids in the photos could easily have been friends of theirs, she said nodding in the direction which the children from the funeral had gone, through the crumbled gap in the wall dividing the housing estate from this wasteland. The area had been zoned for housing once, but the Candyman's crimes had cursed the place, and even the police rarely came here. After all, they'd found all of the bodies, hadn't they? There was no need to go looking for more. 
They understand. Why I did it, I mean. They helped me drag the bastard out here, put him in the dirt where he belongs. Someone saw us put him in the back of the car. They looked the other way. What do you think about that? They knew his house, you see. We all did. It's not him, Marianne wanted to say. To whisper it like the worst secret she could imagine. That's not the candy man in the ground, she would have told the woman, if only she'd had the courage. He isn't the one who gave us sweets. I know the man with the sweets, and that's not him. But she didn't say it. She couldn't. It wasn't allowed. And she was too young to allow it, to give herself permission to tell. You're so easy, aren't you, Marianne? Her own name sounded strange to her, strange in this bleak place, out of the lips of a woman with no emotion left in her. Easy to bribe, a few sweets, that's all it takes to win your trust. That's right, isn't it, Marianne? A handful of sweeties? She replaced the photographs in the shoebox, retied the wool around it, and shoveled the earth aside with her hands, then pushed the box deep into the hole and scooped the soil back over it. Standing up, she clapped her hands together to clean them. Marianne watched her impassive face for a sign of what she might be thinking. There was no indication whatsoever. Off you go now. Go home, Marianne. Mrs. Maxwell pushed her shoulder, urging her toward the distant housing estate. Paul and Marianne sat opposite each other at the Melamine table in Café Olay, formerly Cat's Calf, fellow conspirators. We're going to get caught, I just know it, he said. Paul was thirteen, two years older than her, and she fancied him like mad. She wasn't part of the gang, though, so dating was out of the question. Rubbish. Marianne sucked the small puddle of coke from the lid of the can. You didn't do anything. We helped her. We, leaning forward to say it under his breath, dug the hole and put him in it. And we covered it up. He was already dead. Marianne had a logical turn of mind and would not be disabused of the notion that her friend had just been another victim of womanly wiles just as her real father had been. The police will ask you questions, Marianne, and you'll have to tell the truth. They always get you to tell. Paul's face was the color of clay, and she could just imagine his vision of future events. Marianne being interrogated, naming names, the police coming to his door, his parents in a state of shock. And there would be the newspaper headlines, of course. Schoolboy Gravedigger, High School Ghouls, and vigilante youths pray over their tormentor. The local newspaper, The Telegraph, had been in an uproar when Alexander Lassiter, a convicted pedophile, was released on parole and set up in a council house in town. A national newspaper had conducted a name-and-shame campaign, which The Telegraph leapt upon like a bull mastiff on a poodle. It was the only proper story they'd had for a year.
No one could say where the Polaroids had come from. No one but Marianne. She hadn't been sure, not really. Not until that night when Catherine Maxwell slit Alexander Lasseter's throat with a bread knife, bundled him in some bin bags, and persuaded her dead daughter's friends to help her bury him. Not that she'd planned that part, but Sandra Pearson and her friend Ellie saw her struggling to push the bundle into the boot of her Ford Escort. Paul told Marianne all this, trembling all the while, furtively looking about him in case he should be overheard. We were all glad he was dead when we knew what he'd done. She showed us the photos of... of the others. The others. Victims of the Candyman in his travels over the years. Mercifully, though, Janie's photograph hadn't been in the bundle with the others. With the tip of her tongue, Marianne worried a flake of skin on the inside of her cheek. Her habitual chewing of the delicate flesh had left it raw and flayed. The TV this morning said he never killed them. This doctor said Mr. Lassiter touched kids up, but he never knew the ones in the pictures. They did, what's it, DNA tests or something? That's rubbish, Mare. Marianne hated being called that. It was what he called her. Mum's husband. Not in front of Mum, though. Never around her. It was their secret. Like the other thing. Secret. Between you and me, he would always say afterwards. He was invariably just so bloody nice to her before doing it. Giving her presents. Toys and jewelry, mostly. Because he decided she was too old for sweets now. But afterwards, afterwards he'd be angry with her, threatening. Marianne believed the threats to be real, but now that she had seen the photographs, this reality had taken a form she could touch, and it burned in her heart like a hot poker. Marianne was absorbed in pushing the sausages and beans around her plate until they merged into a sticky stew and failed to notice her mother studying her. Her mom's husband was too busy filling his face and watching a television game show to care. What? she asked provocatively, staring her mother down. Patricia Wells stared back, opening her eyes wide to show that she meant it. Eat it, miss, or no TV tonight. Marianne knew she didn't mean it, so she called her bluff. Can't. I'm a vegetarian. Kieran Wells, that was Mum's husband's name, made a noise through his nose, as though he had a severe head cold. Since when? he said through a mouthful of potatoes and beans. A droplet of tomato sauce on his chin held Marianne's attention. If she looked into his eyes... She'd start shaking again. She just knew it. Since yesterday. Oh, yeah? What about the ham omelette you had for tea, then? Patricia put a placatory hand across the back of his, which was clasped around a mug of tea. Marianne had a plain one. Told me she didn't like ham. Meat gives you BSC, Marianne said knowledgeably. 
It's CJD that humans get, Kieran replied. BSC's the mad cow version. You're not a mad cow, are you? Kieran? Her mother withdrew her hand as though she'd been scalded. On the news once, Marianne had seen a dead cow on a slope of mud in the doorway of its byre, two men dragging its hooves to slide it towards a waiting truck where it would be piled in with the others to be cremated. Its single bulging eye, the glutinous white contrasting with its mud-caked face, haunted her for weeks. The poor creature had no way of understanding what was happening to it as it died, too weak to swipe away the squadrons of flies with its tail, trapped in its own world of unnameable terrors. If I was, I'd be dead now, wouldn't I? You'd like that, Mom, wouldn't you? So you and him could be on your own. Patricia Wells froze. A simmering rage pulled down her brows. Then she said in a low voice, Go to your room, now. Without a word, Marianne stood up but first picked up her plate and turned it upside down, plopping the contents on the carpet, then turned and walked out. Mare, you little brat, get back here. Get back here right this instant. It was Mom's husband shouting. She ignored him. No one came after her as she ran upstairs, but a door slammed behind her and she entered her room with the muffled sound of argument rising from the dining room. Two weeks crawled past before he came to her room again, a longer interval than usual. Her mother was visiting her sister for the day, a Saturday. He clamped his rough, tobacco-smelling hand across her mouth to stop her screaming. But Marianne didn't scream anymore. Screaming wouldn't save her. Rested and dressed, dressed arrested. Much of the night the litany had whirled around in her head, killing sleep, and as she approached the school gates she found herself chanting it softly, over and over again. Among the children forming lines, in year order, at the entrance doors to Shakespeare Street Secondary, she could see Paul near the back of the second-year queue his face a smear in the bright autumnal sunlight. Even without her spectacles, she could discern him from the others. It was because of the way he held himself, like an adult pretending to be a child. So, he mouthed, as she completed the tale of the first cue. Marianne shrugged. Rested, eh? Arrested, eh? Breakfast TV this morning reported that Catherine Maxwell's trial for the murder of Alexander Lassiter ended abruptly when she changed her plea. Everyone could tell the jury was sympathetic, and she would probably have been convicted of manslaughter had she not confessed. Marianne had studied the sketches of the court proceedings on the screen, and then a photograph of Alexander Lassiter's face, which was boyish and looked not unlike the faces of some of his victims. No children had been arrested, nor had any been questioned so far as she knew. It seemed to Marianne that a child could get away with a crime more readily than an adult. Her reverie was broken by the rector's voice ushering everyone inside the building. 
The remainder of the morning she found herself distracted by the school clocks, the big one in assembly, the wooden-framed one in the maths class identical to the ones in the other classrooms, and the one set inside a circle of huge yellow plastic petals in the dining hall, where she was now having lunch. Seeing her on her own, Paul left his group and sat opposite, depositing between them his tray of sandwiches, crisps, Coke, and a king-sized Twix. Marianne tore her empty crisp packet into small pieces and pushed them one by one into her empty Coke can. Paul watched this process with fascination. What the hell's the matter with you, Ma? I thought I told you not to call me that. Sorry, I... Is that lipstick you're wearing? At break, she'd smeared the scarlet lipstick lifted from her mother's handbag across her thin, pale lips. When Cullen, the gym master, questioned her about this, she said she'd been eating an ice lolly. Instead of answering Paul, she contemplated him for a moment. There was an openness to him, a trusting quality, and she quickly decided it would be okay to show him the Polaroid. Pushing it face down across the shiny tabletop, she waited until he turned it over. He recognized it, of course. She could tell by the way his pupils shrank to pinholes. He'd seen the other pictures. Marianne realized that Catherine Maxwell must have shown the pictures to all the children to convince them that what they were doing was natural justice. This picture was one Paul wouldn't have seen, but would recognize it for what it was. Another cave painting. Another wounded, frightened animal. Where? Where did you get this? Off my stepdad. The man with the sweets. For the first time since her father left them, Marianne started to weep. Tears thick as honey spilled across her cheeks. He doesn't know I found it, she explained, trying to still the feverish shudders in her body. He thought he planted them all on Lassiter. Paul grabbed her wrist, halting the tears. Tell the police, Marianne. There was an automatic response, not thought through. Paul McPherson, age 13, naively imagining it could all go away so easily. Not understanding anything, really. I can't believe you. I, I can't believe... He'll kill me, too, Marianne explained simply. I want you to take it, Paul. Nodding at the picture. Keep it safe, in case... In case what? I don't want it. He shoved it back at her. You know in case what? By his bleak expression, it was clear that he did know. That he understood perfectly. On yet another interminable shopping expedition, her mother kept telling her to hurry up and decide what she wanted. Jeans and trainers... A skirt and a t-shirt, or what? Nothing, she said into her sweater. The turtleneck pulled over her chin. Don't want anything. You look like a tramp, said her mother's husband. 
She could feel his eyes roving all over her body. Oh, leave her alone, Kieran, for God's sake. Patricia Wells crouched down, placing a hand on either of her daughter's shoulders and gazing sympathetically into her face. Marianne was squirming with embarrassment. There were people in the supermarket aisles nosing in on the scene. What's the matter, baby? What is it, eh? You hardly talk to us anymore. Marianne checked the emotion that surged up inside her and stared her mother down. She's okay, Pat. Leave her be. Mother's husband said this through clenched teeth. It was then that Paul McPherson and his father David ran into them. And naturally Paul had to study Karen Wells, staring as if trying to waken himself up. Marianne noted her stepfather's beetling brows as he puzzled out the boy's reaction to him. Neither of the children were clever enough to prevent an exchange of guilty looks between them, and Kieran Wells saw. When he looked accusingly into Marianne's eyes, directly, as though he could read her thoughts, the ground fell away from her, and she started screaming. A high, piercing sound, a sustained note almost out of her top range, suddenly stopped then started again. She screamed so much she couldn't catch her breath. The odd part was she didn't feel frightened or upset. It was a robotic scream, an air raid siren, mechanical somehow. A scream that was the only thing that existed in the whole of the world. A slap across her cheek threw her head sideways, wrenching her neck. She fainted, knowing her mother had delivered the blow. It was daylight when she awoke. No, that wasn't right. It wasn't daylight. The light came from a huge photographer's lamp, its silvery parabola amplifying the searing white heat of the bulb. She was cold and wet between her legs. She was wearing only a t-shirt and knickers, and she'd peed herself. The shame was almost as bad as the terror when she saw her spidery shadow against the familiar gray wall. The wall from the Polaroids. You told him, didn't you? The charcoal sketch of a man behind the halo of light was as familiar to her as her own body. You told him, you little cow. Mad cow, she added in her own head. Little mad cow. A deep, sorrowful howl bloomed inside her, an echo inside the cold brick prison. The photographer's studio. The candy man's sweet shop. No use crying, Mare. No one will hear you. You're just another missing kid, that's all. Your mom will never suspect me. Not in a million years. The sketch gradually resolved itself into a man, or something that should have been one but wasn't. He was still charcoal, really. Like a man who'd been burned to cinders a long time ago. Marianne hawked some snot into the back of her mouth and spat it at him, hitting his ear. He remained calm as he wiped the greenish slime away with a handkerchief. Nice shot he said. When he pushed his chain smoker's finger into her mouth, 
She bit it down to the bone. His blood spurted satisfyingly into her mouth, and she spat that in his face, too, even as he bellowed in pain and rocked away from her. Unexpectedly, he didn't hit her. It seemed he had other plans. As his thorny fingers started to work their way up under her T-shirt, blood from his finger streaking her abdomen, she informed him simply that he'd forgotten one of the photographs. What? At last, a reaction. I found it. And I saw all the ones in the shoebox, too. Bet they've got your fingerprints all over them. He smiled weakly, his eyes shadowy with the light behind him. You watch too much television, sweetheart. All those police soaps, complete rubbish. The real police are clueless. Wouldn't know a fingerprint from their asses. Yeah, I planted the pictures, because they were looking for someone closer to home, and I couldn't risk it. It was Janie, Marianne said. Janie Maxwell. You had to take her picture too, didn't you? Didn't you? He moved toward her. She could sense the uncertainty in him, the sourness of his increasing anxiety on his breath. I doubt you have it. You're making it up. Her mother went to prison. Case closed. You took the picture here. She was just where I am now. Marianne had begun to tremble violently, the cold and terror and faint hope mixing in a cocktail of primitive emotions. But her hands were bound together at the wrists. Had her hands been free, she would have ripped his face to shreds. Her legs would have carried her for miles in a blind race against her final nightmare. Clearly, he was so confident about his power over Marianne that he hadn't bothered to tie her to the bed. Just her hands, presumably thinking that was enough. And maybe because he wanted her to be able to move, at least somewhat. Coldly, then, he informed her that she had given the missing Polaroid of Janie Maxwell to someone for safekeeping. But even though she hadn't named Paul, she realized her mistake. Now she'd put her friend in mortal danger, too. Oh, God, how could you? She thought in a panic. The Candyman eyes confirmed that she'd been unable to hide the truth from him, that he knew for certain that the only person she would entrust the photograph to would be Paul McPherson. He melted into the dark again and reemerged with a mobile phone in his hand. What's his number? The bloody finger poised over the keypad. She made no reply. He repeated, more forcefully, I said, what's his number? She remained silent. I can get it from directory inquiries easily, so you might as well let me have it. Defeated, Marianne did as she was bid, and when he got through, he said something polite to Paul's mother and asked if Paul could come to the phone. He held the phone up against Marianne's ear. She squirmed on the camp bed he'd laid her on. The mattress was thin, and at her ankle, she felt one of the springs poking through, scratching her skin. Tell him, he said, to meet me at the ash tree. You know which one.
He needs to bring the photograph if he wants to see you again. Marianne quietly said hello to her friend. As she composed herself to relay the message, she pictured the ash tree. The grave beneath it had long since upturned by the police investigation. But she imagined the wind still blew strands of sugar grains into the night air, hissing their secret to anyone who might listen. Refusing to accept that she would die in any event, she repeated the instructions robotically to Paul, who fearfully mumbled his assent. Marianne truly believed Paul would not even think of informing the police. He would be much too afraid. Terrified that Marianne would be murdered, afraid too, perhaps, that he would be implicated in Lassiter's murder, or at least be imprisoned for being an accessory after the fact. Her captor had established this base for his crimes, his studio-come-slaughterhouse, where he brought his victims from miles around, located who knew where. Uh, are you going to kill me? He hesitated. Of course not, darling. I love you. Didn't I tell you so often enough? He had told her, and Marianne would never forget the circumstances of the telling, even if she lived till she was ninety. A cool hand cupped the side of her face, and she wrenched herself away from it, the rope around her wrist twisting and burning with a sudden movement. I'm thirsty, she said in a flat voice. And she was, a hot dryness shrinking her gums and the roof of her mouth. Wait, he said, as if she could go anywhere. Behind him, she could discern the dim outline of wooden shelving bolted to the wall on angle brackets, almost to the ceiling. A shiny glint with colored sparkles inside it, like a jar of fireflies, caught her attention, and Marianne understood what she was seeing. A shelf full of sweet jars, the big, heavy glass containers one could still find in confectioner's shops. They all had plastic lids the diameter of an outstretched child's hand, Orderly rows of them lined the shelves, filled with every kind of sweet you can imagine. Boilings, cola drops, Jap desserts, sherbet lemons, wrapped mixed toffees, and some with chocolate bars, stuffed full to the brim. Reappearing from his sweet shop, with a big jar of licorice all sorts under his arm, and a bottle of lemonade dangling from his hand, he hunkered down beside her. As he drew nearer, Marianne kicked out violently with her bound feet and started screaming again. She couldn't help it. He'd given those sweets to the ones he was going to torture and photograph and murder. Startled, he raised his arms to restrain her, and lemonade bottle and sweet jar fell to the floor. The bottle bounced on the camp bed and rolled to her feet, but the jar smacked onto the bare concrete floor and smashed spilling yellow and black and red and striped all sorts everywhere. Kieran Wells stopped, and a look of dismay passed over his face as he saw the scattered confectionery. Marianne rolled on her side. Her stepfather started whimpering like a baby and started to pick the sweets up one by one. It was as though he was witnessing the death of his pet dog, or at least something very precious to him. There was glass all over the place. 
Marianne looked over the edge of her cot. Nearby, she noticed one shard, larger than the others. It was a crescent of glass from inside the lid, the thread intact. It had come away, taking with it part of the jar's side, shearing and tapering to a rough point. Unthinkingly, Marianne rolled off her cot and fell to the ground, spikes of glass impaling her knees, one hitting a nerve and sending a jolt of searing pain into her head. Kieran Wells lurched for her, even as she picked up the shard with both hands, its edges slicing her palms. As he fell toward her, she lifted the glassy blade and punched it at his face. It glanced off his eyebrow, hitting bone. He slapped her hand aside. She dropped the piece of glass. As she staggered, he leapt on her, his full body weight pinned her back to the ground, winding her. Marianne tried to scream, but she had no air. He moved slightly then, and she smelled his horrid nicotine breath. His face came closer. Marianne threw her head forward, and her lips disgustingly met his. She felt the start of his smile. But then she opened her mouth and sank her teeth into his lower lip and yanked back for all she was worth. She felt tearing as though she were eating an especially tough steak. Then some blood sprayed hotly on her face. At the same moment came a low, animalistic scream. Kieran Wells fell off her, clawing at his ruined mouth. Marianne spat out his blood and rolled painfully onto her knees. The shard of glass in her knee punched deeper. She gritted her teeth so as not to cry out, she saw the piece of glass just by her feet. As she leant to pick it up, her stepfather fell on her again, knocking her flat to the ground once again. That's it, she thought. I'm dead. The inevitability of it washed through her, a tidal wave of despair. But as she let go, giving herself up to her fate, Wells gave a horrible little titter and relaxed as well, and tried to pick her up by the collar of her t-shirt. The collar bit into her throat, strangling her. Marianne jerked reflexively against the noose and twisted. She reached out, and barely managed to snatch the glass fragment between her bound hands. Somehow she was facing her captor again. He stood, straddling her ankles, a beard of blood pouring down his chin. His mouth was a grotesque slab of flayed meat, his eyes black with venom. It was that look of hatred, more than anything, that galvanized Marianne for one last effort. Miraculously, he hadn't noticed she had a weapon. Barely thinking, she swung her arm fast, as though throwing a ball, clutching the glass shard so tightly it cut her fingers. Her aim was true because the sharp point punched straight into the jelly of his eye. She felt something crack as the blade plunged wetly through the bone socket and into his brain. The most appalling thing was that he didn't yell. Indeed, Kieran Wells was completely silent as he toppled onto his side, arms flailing mechanically, scattering sweets like so many dice. She watched him, until his chest stopped moving up and down, and he was finally quiet. 
thirst burned her throat still. She managed to scramble painfully to her feet. She looked around wildly for a way out, yes, but to meet an even more pressing need first. She managed to hop across the floor to the shelves and eventually found an open toolbox there. It was a surgeon's kit, not a mechanic's. Scalpels and bone cutters, ranks of stainless steel implements she couldn't name. Panting, she picked up a scalpel between her hands and pushed its handle into a gap between the shelf and the bracket holding it up. She sawed the ropes against the tiny blade, slowly and painfully. The sawing seemed endless until the strands of twine eventually began to spread apart and her hands separated. She almost fell as she staggered over to the mobile phone, which hummed on the floor where it must have fallen in the scuffle. Picking up the lemonade bottle and opening the stopper, she began dialing. As she listened to the phone ringing at the other end of the line, she started choking down the juice. She was so desperately thirsty that she didn't even taste the lemon. All she could taste was sugar. That was John Dodd's Sugar Ceremony, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for the Babylon podcast from 06 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients in addition to having fun with the slice of sci-fi websites and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, 
Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we feed the darkness within with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.